It's good to see you all. Um, we're in uh, our third week now of Advent. Um, so next week will be the final week of Advent before Christmas. And um, today, as we go through Malachi, we're going to get into the text in a minute. But before we do, I wanted to introduce an idea, kind of a broader idea. It's a nice, uh, safe, easy, comfortable, non-controversial idea. And that is the idea of divine judgment. <laughs> um, uh, this, is, uh, this is where I want to start today, um, because it's really the main theme of what I want to talk about, actually. Um, but before we get into the text, before we jump into that, um, I want to pause on this idea first um, and unpack it a little bit, because that word, especially judgment, well, both words, divine and judgment, really, but judgment especially, I think, is a very culturally fraught term for us, right? Because it's very, it's very fashionable or it's very popular um, if someone, maybe you've been in this situation or you could feel this feeling, if someone in our culture today, someone in, um, just in our cultural moment, if you get, you get a critique or harsh feedback or a challenge, right, what's a fashionable reaction to that? It's don't judge me, right? Don't judge me. Um, who are you to judge me? Who are you to pronounce a judgment on me? Um, I think there's something about that knee-jerk reaction. Right, you, you all know what I'm talking about, right? Like that feeling. Um, there's something about that knee-jerk reaction, um, that I think helps us understand what judgment, what judgment really is, like what actually does that word really mean. Um, because, and that's what I want to start on. To judge, to make a judgment, is to, um, it's, it seems so simple, right? But it's just to make a determination about something. It's to determine whether something is good or bad, to determine whether something might be moral or immoral, whether someone might be innocent or guilty, uh, whether someone or something might be worthy or worth less, right? Uh, a judgment can be all or some combination of those different things and even others, but it's to, it's to make a determination. Um, and here's the thing. For someone to make a judgment like that, like when, any one of those things I just mentioned, for someone to make a judgment, they must believe themselves to be in a proper position from which to make that determination, Right? They must believe themselves to have enough wisdom, enough knowledge, enough perspective, enough maturity uh, to be able to offer a judgment like someone is worthy or someone is innocent or someone is guilty, right? Pretty simple. Well, we don't stop and think about that very much. So, so then I think that kind of gets at when someone who you believe to be a, your peer, your, your social peer, someone on equal standing with you, when they start making a judgment about you, it kind of speaks to that uh, discomfort we feel. Because in a way, when someone gives you judgment, they're kind of putting themselves above you, right? Um, think, I, think literally in a courtroom, right? Like, where does the judge sit? The judge sits literally above, like, everyone else there. So there's something symbolic about that. Like, they have the perspective from which they can kind of make d- these determinations. So when someone gives a judgment on you, and you thought they were your, your peer, suddenly they're putting themselves in that judgment seat, and that kind of rankles, right, in our very kind of democratic egalitarian culture and society that that's very uh offensive um who you know who are you to put yourself in that position right that's kind of what i think happens but so that's the negative side but consider the other side of the same coin for a second and maybe you can start to see where i'm going to go with this what about when there is someone that you do respect immensely someone that does have wisdom maturity perspective. When someone has all of those things, and, and you know they do, and what about when that person gives you a judgment? 
you would hopefully listen. You actually, dare I say, might want that judgment, right? Even if it's uncomfortable, if you know it's coming from a trusted, trustworthy, mature, wise source, you might want to hear what they have to say because you know it could be the gateway to your own growth, your own maturity, your own deeper love even. So I want, I want you to notice, and I'm spending some time on this here because it's such a fraught word, judgment, but I want you to notice how that same concept, that same word, judgment, can be experienced radically differently depending on the source of the judgment, right? Depending on the source. And so, right here at the beginning, before we even look at Malachi, I want to stop and consider this concept of divine judgment. Judgment that we believe comes from a transcendent source, a source that is wholly outside of us, a source that we believe, as Christians, people of faith, we believe that God is the epitome of all the things I mentioned. Wise, mature, all-knowing, loving, especially. And if that is the source from which a divine judgment might be coming for us, if you would listen to a mature mentor, a human mentor that has a judgment for you, how much more should you listen to a possible divine judgment upon you? If it, again, is coming from that source, that's crucial. And that's essentially, this is what today is all about. It's about listening to God's judgment, even if maybe we don't want to, or if it's uncomfortable. Again, this is our third week of Advent. So the overall theme of Advent is things like waiting, things like preparation, preparing ourselves to receive from God. Um, And in that light, I want us this morning to consider how maybe we need to reframe our own ideas about divine judgment. And maybe part of Advent is to prepare ourselves to hear what God's judgment might be. Because, again, and I'm going to come back to this at the end, that judgment comes from a good source, a trustworthy source. And in, in that context, gosh, it's so hard for us because judgment is so negative, right? It's like, I'm really trying to reframe that. Because I really think that, understood rightly, divine judgment from a source as good as God becomes good news for us. And so that's, that's where we're going to go. Um, so in Malachi, you can, if you have um, a text, you can go to Malachi 3. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, and I don't want to cover, I'm not going to cover too much of the context of Malachi because that's been, that's been rehashed a, bit, a little bit the past few weeks. Um, fairly, I think fairly extensively. But what I do want to reiterate is that, again, this has been covered, but things are not good in Israel. That's kind of the main, the main context piece to get here. Things are not good, and the prophet Malachi is, is in the midst of the not goodness, giving the word of God, giving the judgment of God to go with our theme. Um, and so what we're going to get into here is in chapter 3, I think um, we're getting more of what I'm, what I'm terming Malachi. I'm calling it Malachi's case against Israel. So this is kind of like the full, the full kind of case. What's wrong in Israel? Um, we've talked a bit, and two weeks ago I talked a little bit about the sacrifices at the temple, if you were here for that. Last week, uh, Danny talked about the theme of unfaithfulness, and especially uh, through the lens of marriage, um, marriage and divorce. Uh, this week is a little bit more fully orbed, kind of a full, full sense of what has gone wrong. And one thing I want to say is that uh, a lot, there's a lot of temple, like religious language about sacrifices and religious practices, but in the ancient world especially, there was not this like church and state split, you know? Um, it's not like, well, churches do their thing and then the state does their thing. It was all deeply entangled. And so uh, things that are wrong with the temple are 
indicative of things that are wrong with society, right, in this case. And I would actually, well, that's a tangent. I'm not going to go there. Um, but uh, I think that we have a false split so, sometimes there. Anyways, I'm going to resist the temptation. Stay on time. So um, the case against Israel here covers, I think, three areas. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, comment briefly on each. Um, the three areas in Malachi's case against Israel, as it's presented in chapter 3 here, are uh, how the socially vulnerable are being treated, what's happening with the tithe, and then um, how are they talking about God, right? These are kind of the three big cases, themes of Malachi's case, like when he presents what's going wrong. Um, so I'm going to take each one in turn. Uh, verse 5. I'm just going to read it off the screen for the sake of the translation being the same. Uh, this is the New Revised Standard, in case that matters to you. Um, in verse 5, Malachi, again, these are, Malachi is a prophet of God, and Malachi is delivering the words from God to the society. He says, in, from God's perspective, Then I, being God, will draw near to you for what? For judgment. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, and listen to this, against those who oppress the hired workers in their wages, who oppress the widow and the orphan, and against those who thrust aside the alien or the foreigner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So this is a, this is a really packed verse uh, that contains a lot of judgments of God against specific aspects of what's going on. Um, I'm tempted to comment on every single one, but that would take too long. Um, I wanted, what I want to bring out here in this verse in particular is the theme of how God cares so much about the socially vulnerable and weak in the midst of Israelite society. And the reason we're spending so much time on this is because I unpack the theme of just what judgment abstractly means, but here we're getting what is God's judgment specifically for humans, right? Um, And so pretty much almost every, I mean, even the sorcerers, like the sort, you read that and you're like, what in the world is that going on? Well, the sorcerers in this context were likely people who held out promises of being able to manipulate nature, right, or fertility, things like that. So if someone had, was worried about their crops, they might go to a sorcerer and pay them uh, for security on making sure they'd get rain, something like that. Um, Seems super primitive to us, but I would argue, like I usually do, we do a lot of the same stuff, we just do it through different things, like technology. Um, False promises, things we can control. Um, But they were, but the the theme here, one theme, important theme, is that the sorcerers typically preyed on who's going to most likely go out of desperation to a sorcerer is someone who's probably in a socially vulnerable position. So they were preying on people who were likely to give money over. Um, and so that's one way in which God was judging, judging the sorcerers. Not to mention, of course, they were making false promises about things they couldn't control spiritually and religiously, right? That's also bound up in there. But look at the, the oppressing the hired workers in their wages, uh, oppressing the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. That, that is a fascinating verse. If you know anything about the story of Israel, I mean, they are a people who are ethnically rooted. Like, they came from the seed of Abraham. That is who they are. And for God to be saying, you're not treating people who are not the seed of Abraham well in your own midst, I mean, that is really radical. We see God's grace just all over, all over the Old Testament. It's popular to rag on the Old Testament as being a graceless book, but it's just not true. But the other thing I want to say, I want to turn the lens on us for a second with this verse in mind. Notice how much God cares about the socially vulnerable and weak. This is reveals specifics of what God is judging as not good. And it reveals God's heart for how a human society should function. But also, this has been really striking to me recently, um, I think it reveals, well, I know it reveals 
our humans, humanity's seeming inability to build a just society on our own. We can't do it. I think we can't do it. It's not fashionable to say that. But how long ago was this happening? And how many of these things are we still doing? Right? To survey political causes right now. I was just talking to someone, not someone in this church, um, someone uh, week, within the past week who is a bit younger than me, who is really struggling with, with career and jobs and just not able to, f- having a really hard time finding something. Um, and so out of kind of last resort options, and he's, he's master's degree. He's a well-educated person. Um, out of kind of a last degree, uh, last resort, he decided to work at an Amazon warehouse. Um, and he made it three weeks because it was just brutal. The hours, the, like, the, the, the treatment, the, the running around constantly. He'd, and, and he's a young guy. He's in his 20s. And he's, he told me there are people, he was working alongside people in their 60s, people in their 70s in this warehouse. Um, a ton of uh, he, what he believed were undocumented people. Um, a lot of people who clearly had no other options for income, right? Oppress the hired workers in their wages, thrusting aside the foreigner, right? These are people, wh- and I'm sitting there I'm like, but I love my Amazon Prime membership. You know, like that was literally hitting me. And like, I, you know, it's like, you kind of laugh because you're like, oh yeah, but this is uncomfortable. But for me, and I'm just going to say for me, I know there's probably a lot of faithful Amazon users in this room. For me to be able to get that free shipping that I love so much, there have to be people holed up in a warehouse somewhere that I don't even know about who are probably getting mistreated, who might not be documented, who might be worried about getting deported, right? Who are living paycheck to paycheck. For me to get my free shipping, right? Oppressing the hired workers, thrusting aside the foreigner. Man, I just, it's convicting. I, I know, preaching against Amazon, the two weeks before Christmas. Um, But I think there's something important here. Like, I just think we cannot build a society on our own that follows these precepts. We cannot do it. If Israel couldn't do it and they had the law directly revealed to them from God and they still got so off track, like, how much do we think we can do it? We can't build a just society on our own. We cannot build God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven on our own. That's part of God's judgment. The second thing is the tithe. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I talked about it a lot two weeks ago. But the tithe was uh, sacrifice um, in verse 8. There's a lot of this qu- question and answer in Malachi. It's really interesting. Um, if, you just, if you get a chance to read it, there's a lot of this back and forth. It's like dialogue. Uh, will anyone rob God in verse 8? And then God is saying, but you say, but you were saying back to me, how are we robbing you? Like, how are we doing this, God? And he says, in your tithes and your offerings. They're holding back the tithes and offerings. They're not presenting them at the temple the way they should. And again, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I talked a lot about sacrifice two weeks ago. But to reiterate here, it is, the tithe was intended to be a sacrificial thing. It was intended to be for their own good to practice sacrifice and centering God, right, in that way, that disciplined way. But it also was the practical source of sustenance for the priests. And also, I, I actually didn't know this until I researched it a bit more, Part of the tithe was intended to be a, a reserve, again, for the poor. Part of the tithe pooled resources to serve the marginalized and the poor and the widows and the orphans. And so to sacrifice on the tithe was also harming the least of these. God cares about that. Um, in addition, again, to the spiritual practice of sacrifice, which is super important for humans to engage in. And then number three, and again, the case against, the case against Israel, against the how the socially vulnerable are treated, how the tithe is being handled, and then finally how they're talking about God. In verse 13, it says, in God's perspective, you have spoken harsh words against me, says the Lord. 
You have said it is vain to serve God. What do we profit by keeping his commands? How is this helping us? Now we count the arrogant, happy, evildoers not only prosper, but when they put God to the test, they escape. Man, this is relatable. How many of us have said things like this, right? Or thought things like this. Like, why do the evil people get to do whatever they want? They seem like they're happy. They seem like they have good lives, you know? How does it help me to keep these commands of God? How is it actually helping my life? Now, one nuance I want to add here. I want to make a distinction. I I don't want to say if you have felt these things in an honest moment of doubt or worry, that is not, (laughs) God's not bringing the hammer down on that. I want to say that very loud and clear. If you said in a, in a, in a moment of crisis, like, I, I don't get this. I don't know why I'm swallowing these commands. That's not what's being judged here. These words, listen to this, these words are being delivered to the priests. So the priests are the ones saying this. The religious leaders who are shepherding Israel and how they are supposed to be thinking about God are saying this. Publicly, apparently. That is where the judgment is being delivered. Right? I want to, I want to make that very, very clear. That was well-timed. Um, so, how the socially vulnerable are treated, how the tithe is handled, which also feeds into how the socially vulnerable are treated, and then finally, how the religious leaders and those who are shepherding the people are talking about God. This is what is going wrong in Israel. This is Malachi's case against Israelite society. So to tie these three things together, well, what do we have? We have... To kind of try to simplify it, we have Israel, who is God's chosen nation to work through. Whenever someone says God's chosen nation, what that means is God chose them to work through to bless the entire world. But we have this chosen people, and part of God working with them and through them was to give them the law directly, right? Israel, who has been given law and instruction directly from God, are a display of injustice a display of corrupt religion, and a display of teaching false things about God and God's character amidst the nations who are watching. Not exactly a great situation. Not exactly, it seems, God's intent. They've gotten way off track. And I I have to say, I've already kind of talked about this a minute ago, but in these areas how the socially vulnerable are treated, how we handle sacrifice, how we speak about God. Can we really say we're, we're much more advanced, much better? I love C.S. Lewis's idea of chronological snobbery. It's because we've come later, we think we're better. Hmm. Totally, totally false. We have better technology. But if, if in these areas we can relate to Israel's status. Might we also be in a position to need God's judgment as they were? Might that be the case? And it is into this context of all of this stuff being so off track that Malachi delivers the promise of a messenger. And this is in verse one. Uh, So I'm jumping back to the top of the chapter. In the midst of all of this, against this case against Israel, Malachi says, See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. 
and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Think about that phrase for a second. If all this is going wrong and the Lord suddenly comes to the temple, what is that going to <laughs> be like? I cannot help but think about Jesus in the temple overthrowing the, the tables, right? Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? If we're so off track and the Lord appears right in the middle of that, who can stand? It's into this context that Malachi delivers this, this promise. God is saying that this all needs to get cleaned up. This all needs to get corrected. A messenger is coming ahead of God to get the people ready for that correcting. Very short sidebar, just to not, hopefully not make this too confusing. Christians traditionally have looked at the New Testament and interpreted John the Baptist as this messenger, right? So the messenger is not the Messiah. The messenger is the one beforehand. Um, and of course, we believe that Jesus is this coming of the Lord into his temple. We believe that. That's why the incarnation is so important to understand. But that's end, end of the sidebar there. So I want to circle back with this in mind. I want to circle back to how I started this message and talking about divine judgment. Um, because I want us to think about this whole initiative of God. God is the sending one. I am sending my messenger. I am sending my messenger ahead of me. Me, I'm going to come. That whole initiative is, I think, another example of God's grace. This is where grace and judgment um, are not opposed to each other. Because the whole deal is that God does not want to leave us to our own devices. God does not want to leave us in our off-track state. God does not want to leave human society going down the road Israelite society was going down. And just like I said at the beginning, it's precisely when you're in the wrong it's precise, especially when you're in the wrong and you don't realize you're in the wrong, that is when you need judgment from a trusted source, right? How many of us can relate to that in a personal way? We've been in the wrong, you didn't realize you were wrong, and a spouse or a friend or a family member comes to you and says, hey, it kind of, you got to wake up to what you're doing here. That is when you need the judgment the most. And again, when it comes from such a trustworthy source, it's good news, even if it hurts. And that's where I want to end today, actually. I'm going to look at verse 6. This is where I, I said two weeks ago, um, Malachi is a pretty bleak book in some ways. It has a lot of dark warnings. Um, but good news kind of pops off the page in surprising places. And here in verse 6 of chapter 3, listen to this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, have not perished. I do not change. Therefore, there's a very clear link. Your survival is because I do not change. Israel's ongoing existence, their, their continued existence as a nation in this case, in this context of the Old Testament, it's not due to their own goodness. It's not due to their own faithfulness. It's, in fact, far, far from that. They've been far from faithful. But it is due to God's consistency of character and God's faithfulness to the promises that God makes. And God promised to bring about salvation. So in this context of this promise, God's unchanging character, God's unchanging commitment to love and rescue, in that context, I really, really do believe that God's judgment upon humans, God's judgment upon us, can be received as good news. Because again, it's rooted in God's fiercely unchanging commitment to bring us back to himself. 
And if we're drifting away from that, we need to be judged to realize what's going on. And here's the thing. God has been faithful, relentlessly faithful to this project, even unto a cross. And this is where I want to end this morning before we go to communion. Because in, in communion, we, we commemorate this event. And I want to say, I want to, I want to talk about the cross in a specific way, as we close, I want to talk about the cross as God's judgment upon the direction we've taken the world. Or the more, I guess, religious way to put it is God's judgment upon sin. The cross is God's judgment upon sin. And so on the face of it, especially if you've been around religious ch- churchy circles most of your life, you can kind of forget this easily. But on the very face of it, on the surface of it, the cross is an ugly event. I used to get the question a lot when I did college ministry um, around Good Friday, Easter time, I would get questions like, why do you call it Good Friday? Just from looking at it, it seems like a bad Friday, right? <laughs> um, it's true. The only, it only is a perceived as good through the lens of faith and what you believe actually like happened metaphysically there. Um, but on the face of it, the cross is an ugly event. And I want to say that I, I think this ugly, the ugliness of it the, 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 not only the violence, but the mocking, the sham of justice. That ugliness is God's judgment. That ugliness is God saying, look at this. This is not good. This is where you are going. Humans, my creation, who bear my image, who I have so much more for, this is where you're headed. Jesus, whom, whom we believe in a mysterious way that's really impossible to comprehend, we believe was God incarnate, God enfleshed. Jesus suffered the social injustice and the false witness and mocking that Malachi brought in the case against Israel. Jesus suffered deep injustice in the social situation. He was mocked. He was spoken of falsely, just like Israel spoke falsely of God's character through this event. And in a very powerful way that's hard to articulate, we can see this event as God bringing God's judgment to the surface in a way that's impossible to ignore and then also taking it on himself. Bringing it out to the surface, saying again, with a spotlight on human evil and sin and the ways we've gone off and the ways we've subjected ourselves to corrupting powers and principalities, just him shining a spotlight right on that, saying, look at this. This is not good. Romans says that God condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus. I think that's what this means. This is God's judgment. This is God's, this is God saying, this is not good. Look at how not good this is. But God took that, it's, again, it's hard to articulate this, but God took that on himself. God brought it to the surface and then put himself at the center of it and received it. And so I want to turn um, to communion now. So I don't know if um, one or two people can come up and hand out communion. Yeah. Jared, come up, thanks. And Doug, yeah. Um, they're going to come around and hand out the communion elements.
But I want to I want to dwell as we get ready to take these. Wait wait until they hand them out, um, and I'll guide us through actually taking them in together. Um, but I want to dwell on the idea that this judgment, the divine judgment of God upon the state that we are in, that is something that we need. We need it. Because left to ourselves, we would just continue in our off-track state. We would continue in our misguided state. We need to be reminded we are off-track. We need to be reminded we cannot extricate ourselves from sin. We cannot untangle ourselves from this. And God's judgment upon the sin that does entangle us is born out of God's grace, God's love, God's commitment to us and to our salvation. And therefore, the judgment is good news. And like I said a minute ago, in taking communion together, we also remember that God absorbed the judgment into himself. The juice, the the wafer, points to the blood that was spilled and the flesh that was broken. The incarnate flesh of God that was broken upon revealing the truth of God's judgment. And the final thing I want to say, this is really important. We can know, as we take this communion together, I want you to meditate on this truth, this powerful truth. We can know because of the cross, we can know that divine judgment has been meted out. It is finished. The judgment has been declared. It has been revealed. It has been displayed. And it is done. This is why I'm so twitchy about people pulling on world events and saying this is God's judgment. No, no, no. This is God's judgment. The cross is God's judgment. It's happened. God took care of it. It's been resolved. We don't need something else to reveal to us how much God does not like sin and the ways that we've gone off track. We don't need something else to tell us about that. We have this. So cling to that. Because this is good news. Right? So as we continue to wait in this season of Advent, as we continue to prepare ourselves, I think we have an invitation to receive this. So I pray, I pray you'd receive it as you literally receive the wafer and the juice this morning. Excuse me, this morning. Receive divine judgment because you know that you need it, because we know we need it, and because we know we have a good and loving Father who is working out our salvation and is, make, is, is making all things new. So I invite you to open, open this if you haven't already. Take the wafer and dip it into the juice. And remember Christ's words, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. This is the blood spilled for the new covenant, which I will not drink again until the kingdom comes. Take and eat together.